Hello, friends, and welcome to a special follow-up episode of Minding Scripture. My name is Gabriel Said Reynolds of the World Religions World Church Program of the University of Notre Dame, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Professor of Theology, Svi Novik. Hello, Svi. Hi, Gabriel. How are you? I'm doing well, and happy that we have a chance to speak a little bit more about the Gospel of John. And just to explain, this is an exceptional episode because... Uh, in a previous episode, I had a conversation with um, Catholic podcaster extraordinaire Matt Frad, specifically about the Gospel of John, and I thought it would be fun to follow up with Svi to think about the Gospel of John also from a Jewish perspective. The conversation with Matt was um, really, we got into some detail about how to think with the Church in, um, in terms of or in respect to the Gospel of John, and of course there's a lot to be said about the Jewishness of John, along with the rest of the New Testament. Uh, so maybe we can explore that uh, that angle um, together. Uh, I would just say, maybe as by way of introduction, that you know John is um, distinct from the other three Gospels in the New Testament, stylistically certainly, theologically probably. So we want to sort of get at some of its distinctiveness. Maybe we can start there, Svi. Is that okay? What would you say are the most distinctive features of John? Sure. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, of course, right. Uh, scholarship divides the four Gospels into the synoptics that can be literally synoptic seen together. Uh, and then John is uh, uh, presents the story of um, of Jesus differently and with different emphases. Um, uh, one uh, kind of common way of uh, of characterizing John vis-a-vis the other Gospels is in terms of a of a high Christology, of right. a perspective on Jesus, as it were, from the heights or from uh, above, going to below, in contrast with the uh, with the Jesus uh, that is uh, viewed uh, uh, from the other Gospels, perhaps as it were, from the ground up. Uh, so that's one one way of characterizing John's distinctive emphasis: a more spiritual gospel, a more theological gospel, also a more um, uh, poetic gospel. I mean, to, to a certain extent, I suppose one could characterize the gospel of John as straining against uh, the gospel form. Uh, you know, if the gospel form is fundamentally a story about Jesus's life, then um, you have the, the gospel of John, which indeed is, is uh, a, it tells a story, uh, but nevertheless strains against it. Uh, for example, uh, in these, in the prevalence of these very long monologues, um, so it's it's a, a story, that, but that is kind of straining toward right. a more poetic form, perhaps. Right. Interesting. Yes, my students here at Notre Dame often notice that Jesus seems to be chattier in John. Uh, <laughs> you have these long discourses, the the bread of life discourse, the true vine, many many others. Um, so, what do you think about the style? I mean, just personally, uh, as a work of literature, do you like John? Is it, how does it stand up for you against just stylistically as a work of literature, maybe, unless you want to add theological comments in regard to the other gospels? Right. Well, I mean, it is, I mean, it is, it is, it is remarkable as a, as a, as a work of literature. I mean, as a, um, uh, as a, as a, as a crafted text, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I suppose the, um, um, modern critics in contrast with, uh, sort of earlier critics, uh, typically, uh, are you know uncomfortable with you know the the literal 
the, the literal task of the critic judging, right, determining, uh, right. making judgments about better and worse, and instead are more inclined to, right. uh, you know, take each text on its face as having its own, in terms of its own goals, uh, and kind of inquiring as to, uh, uh, you know, what, what goals it's setting for itself and how is it going about trying to achieve those goals. Uh, but speaking as a, as a critic, as it were, uh, <laughs> as a, an amateur critic, uh, yeah, I think the, 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 uh, the Gospel of John is a... Uh, it's a beautiful text. I mean, uh, I don't, uh, of course, uh, as a uh, uh, as a Jew, kind of don't have the uh, anything like the, the theological commitments of the Gospel of John. But as in the case of Paul, uh, I have a deep appreciation uh, in the case of Paul for the sheer kind of exegetical brilliance of Paul, uh, and in this case, for for both the exegetical and the rhetorical brilliance of the uh, of the Gospel of John. Well, I'm going to pivot now to speak. Uh, or to ask you to speak about the um, the Jewish qualities of the Gospel of John. Actually, it's sort of a two-part question. One is, yeah, so how Jewish is John as a book? Uh, but also, is John a useful source for understanding first century Judaism? I know it's a lot there, but... So I think uh, kind of scholars thinking about John in its Jewish context, thinking about the Gospel of John in its Jewish context, first think, think first about John as a source for the historical Jesus. Uh, and in that respect, John certainly is, is understood as taking second place to the synoptic Gospels. But, uh, but uh, scholars more recently uh, have, have appreciated that the Gospel of John is not w- without its value right. for understanding the historical Jesus, that, that there's certain details uh, that one finds in the Gospel of John that may in fact illuminate that quest. Um, but more generally, uh, even if uh, the Gospel of John is uh, giving us um, something more of, a, of this uh, theological distillation of, um, of, of Jesus rather than a, a story, uh, though, of course, the other synoptic Gospels are doing theology too. But even right. if the Gospel of John um, is of less value for recovering the historical Jesus, it's a, a vital witness, um, an essential mirror onto the process, this historical process that scholars call the parting of the ways, mm-hmm. this process whereby a small circle of exclusively Jewish followers of a Jewish Jesus come to be a just formation Christianity that sets itself apart from Judaism. Uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John, you have, uh, for the first time, Jesus, in, in fact, setting himself, setting himself apart from, defining himself in relation to the Jews, in, um, and that, that's the, the word that is used. Um, and so, while uh, scholars of the um, of the Gospel of John uh, by no means uh, think that we already have a full-blown uh, parting of the ways, um, you know, such as you have in the medieval period uh, with Jews on one side and Christians on the other. Uh, nevertheless, the Gospel of John really is uh, giving us important insight into uh, an early uh, an early moment, an early important moment. In that process of parting, but, but also in its uh, in its style and especially its appeal to the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Uh, I, I mean, it 
it's deeply in conversation, I would assume, with um, Jewish ways of thinking, theologizing. Oh, sure, sure, yes. I mean, of course. So, so the gospel is in Greek, um, but the um, but the, the, the um, that that in itself, of course, doesn't put it outside of a of a Jewish realm. We have a um, a robust um, Judaism in Greek, uh, sometimes called the Hellenistic Judaism, uh, but it's not categorically separate from um, the sort of theology and exegesis of Jews working in Hebrew and then Aramaic. Uh, and so John is deeply engaged in that. For example, you have in, uh, in John 10, um, Jesus alludes to uh, and uh, seems to allude to an exegesis of Psalm 82, where uh, according to which the Jews, when they receive the Torah at Sinai, are angel-like. Uh, but then because of their sins, because of the sin of the golden calf, perhaps uh, they fall from that exalted position. Uh, and that's the kind of exegesis that we find attested uh, elsewhere in Jewish sources. Um, John is engaged in, in, his, uh, uh, in that discourse of uh, Jesus as the, as the bread of life in an interpretation of the manna story uh, that you find echoes of elsewhere in Jewish biblical interpretation. Uh, so yes, absolutely. And John's engagement with the with the Old Testament or with the Bible, uh, he is um, absolutely in conversation with, um, aware of contributing to um, an exegetical conversation that encompasses um, Judaism. Uh, one of the verses I spoke about with Matt Fred um, is the opening verse. Uh, the famous opening uh, of the word being with God and being God. Um, I, I, I We didn't get into the resonances of that verse with um, Old Testament Hebrew Bible material. Uh, it, I, there's probably a lot to be said there. It may be, maybe there are also um, uh, other intertestamental writings that are important for this notion of the word of God, um, or the wisdom of God. Could, could you enlighten us a bit about about those those ideas? Sure, sure. Yes. Well, I, right. Of, of course, the idea. I mean, in the beginning, of course, is is evocative of uh, uh, of Genesis, of Genesis one and uh, and the creation of the world, uh, and the word itself is evocative of uh, the same story of the creation of the world because God creates through speech. But this idea of the word being with God, right? So uh, something. Uh, uh, divine um, or quasi-divine, divine-like that is accompanying God, right? That does uh, evoke another trajectory um, to some extent independent from uh, Genesis 1. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's to Proverbs, the, uh, this book of wisdom in the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, that, uh, that many scholars look. So Proverbs is this book of wisdom, um, composed mainly of uh, sayings, wise sayings designed to be memorized and kind of drilled into uh, the young student. Uh, but uh, Proverbs 8 uh, kind of describes, uh, enters kind of into a more theological uh, reflection on the nature of wisdom. Uh, and wisdom is here personified um, as, uh, and speaks um, Right, um, as, as as having accompanying God accompanying God during creation, 
Uh, and so many scholars see this characterization in the prologue to the Gospel of John of the Word as being with God in the beginning uh, as a reworking of this sort of mythology of personified wisdom. Right. Um, Is it right, too, that maybe it's later Jewish thinking, but there's an, a notion of the Torah somehow having a pre-existence? Is that right? Oh, well, right, right. So no, so, so the, the, the same trajectory that you find in the, in the Gospel of John, where that pre-existent wisdom comes to be identified with the Word and with Christ. Uh, so in the Jewish tradition, that Word comes to be, or that pre-existent wisdom, rather, uh, comes to be identified with the Torah. And so that's okay. something that you find uh, evidence of already in what's called that intertestamental period or in the, the second temple period uh, in the book of Ben Sirah, for example, mm -hmm. or Sirach, which is part of the Catholic Bible, but not the Jewish one in Sirach 24. Um, and then it becomes, yes, fully blown in, uh, fully developed in uh, in the rabbinic uh, um, in rabbinic midrash and rabbinic readings of uh, proverbs, uh, right? The Torah, uh, that is to say, uh, in the narrower sense, uh, the five books of Moses, but in the widest sense, um, all of divine wisdom um, uh, comes to be um, uh, comes to be um, uh, comes to be elevated. Um, to, to the point where it really is the equivalent in uh, Jewish theology to, uh, in certain respects, to the, the place of Christ in, uh, in Christian theology. Right. Uh, and right. so there is this parallel trajectory between uh, the way John kind of links pre-existent wisdom to Christ and the way the Jewish tradition links uh, that pre-existent wisdom to the Torah. Right, That's right. Right. Okay. Right. There's another theme that appears in the prologue to John's Gospel in chapter one, there, which is light and darkness. I spoke about that briefly with Matt. Um, I, this is probably I'm probably going to embarrass myself, but that won't be the first time uh, <laughs> on mining scripture. <laughs> but um, I I have this idea that at at Qumran, and I don't know if that's right. I also don't know if that's something indicative of Second Temple Judaism more broadly or limited to Qumran, even if that were right. There, there is, uh, the themes of light and darkness are, are important to thinking about the world and God's relationship to the world. Uh, is that right? I mean, would you see some connection there between John's use of light and darkness and Second Temple Judaism? Um, so for sure, yeah, yeah. There, there are in fact right the, the right the, the sons of light and the sons of darkness uh, is one one way in which the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the sect associated with this um, with these scrolls uh, kind of characterize uh, those who are uh, those who are uh, with God and those who are without those who are within the sect, in the case of the sect more narrowly, and those who are outside of it. Um, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, there's definitely a connection. I mean, the, the, um, the, the discovery of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the middle of the 20th century uh, was uh, uh, undoubtedly the, 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 mo the most important um, uh, archaeological discovery for, um, for understanding the, the 
background to the emergence of of Christianity in the um, uh, at the end of the Second Temple period, and so there are many many links uh, between the Gospel of John and other parts of the New Testament uh, and uh, the the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, but it is it is interesting. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a complicated question. A lot of what you find in the Dead Sea Scrolls um, could be characterized as apocalyptic, okay. where okay. what's been envisioned here is a kind of there is a uh, there's a long kind of reign of sin where the world, uh, perhaps even from Adam, has fallen under the sway of sin and the prince of darkness. Uh, again, that that imagery of darkness. Um, and but but uh, there will be imminently uh, the uh, an end to that reign of sin and the emergence of the kingdom of God, um, and th- that's that 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 idea that framework that apocalyptic framework does drive a lot of uh, thinking uh, among some early Christians. But John, interestingly, um, uh, that 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 idea is not prominent in John. One one pro- one, one important uh, scholar of uh, uh, of the New Testament, especially in its um, in its Jewish context, Paula Fredrickson um, kind of characterized the Gospel of John as shifting the fundamental theological axis. I'm paraphrasing here, but I think this is more or less right of shifting the fundamental theological axis uh, from the horizontal to the vertical. Hmm. Uh, so, whereas in, a, in an apocalyptic framework, it's this horizontal sense of present and future. Uh, that predominates right. the kingdom of sin versus the coming kingdom of God. John reorients the axis to the vertical, uh, and the fundamental contrast is the world and above. Yes. So John is certainly in conversation with, to some extent, emerging from that framework, uh, but to an important extent, um, reaching, again, a sort of theological distilla- distillation of the significance of Christ that reorients that that second temple back. Okay, that is very helpful. That is that's excellent. Yeah, I um, uh, time is short, but I, I did want to speak about another passage that came up, and I'm just sort of shifting awkwardly yeah. to another element of of John, which is the third chapter. Uh, and this, what unfolds there, is a conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Yeah, uh, Nicodemus comes by by night, and. Um, he is plays the role of the conversation partner of Jesus. Jesus has the answers and sort of guides Nicodemus along uh, with his message. Um, I had two th- two questions there. One is if you wanted to comment about the role of Pharisees in John's gospel. As I know, it's a big one. It's mm-hmm. probably unfair. And now I'm going to add a second question, which is in that conversation, there's an allusion to an episode in Numbers 21 where Moses lifts up a serpent in the wilderness. And there's a sort of exegesis or commentary on that by John through Jesus, the words of Jesus in John, of uh, comparing that to Jesus' own exaltation on the cross, which somehow heals as a serpent does. So I know that's a lot. Right. Do you have to comment yeah, on either yeah. of those? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, at least <laughs> at least briefly, well, I mean, on, on the first question, I mean, on the, the Pharisees, right? So, so Jesus certainly 
but uh, uh, you know, as in as in other gospels, debates regularly with the Pharisees, and uh, though though here, of course, Nicodemus is going to be something more of a uh, of a positive uh, character in a certain res- respect. Anyhow, I mean, I should say, and this is, I guess, not so much to qualify, but to provide a, a larger context for the question of John as a Jewish book or John as a reflection on uh, this parting of the ways. I mean, it is important to, I guess, to to to, to mention that uh, in this, uh, it, it's it's not just um, that we have John versus the, uh, Jesus versus the Pharisees or Jesus versus the Jews, um, but but also that it, we have here emerging a very negative uh, portrait of um, of the Jews as such. I mean, and and th- this is something that um, reaches, I suppose, its most uh, guess problematic expression certainly in the reception of John uh, in, the, in Jewish-Christian relations in chapter 8, um, where, uh, which ha- um, a passage that actually has its connections with, um, with John 3, uh, where Jesus tells uh, his interlocutors, uh, these Jews who are uh, uh, the descendants of Abraham, uh, again, they, they don't understand him, just like Nicodemus doesn't uh, understand Jesus in, uh, in chapter 3. And he says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot accept my word. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. And so there um, you have uh, this kind of very sharp dichotomy mm-hmm. that, uh, mm-hmm. that ends with this characterization of the Jews as the sons of the devil. And so this has very... Um, negative uh, ramifications and repercussions in later uh, Jewish-Christian relations. This particular uh, passage in chapter 3, I mean, it's, it is, it's, an amazing, uh, it's an amazing passage uh, that you have. Uh, I mean, it's, it's so, so rich. I mean, you have a, um, a pun in this passage between above and again, right, a Greek pun. Uh, and if Jesus is punning in Greek, that's probably an indication that this is not a reflection of the historical Jesus, mm-hmm. um, but and you here have here also again a kind of um, um, indication of that reorienting toward the vertical axis in this um, uh, in this emphasis on um, above and below uh, being born from above. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, also in, as you say, this characterization or this association between the cross and the lifting up of the serpent. So here, as elsewhere in the Gospel of John, what becomes important about the crucifixion, uh, ultimately important about the crucifixion, remarkably, is the fact that it is a lifting up, uh, a kind of, again, a, a kind of a gesturing perhaps toward above uh, or, a, uh, or a, uh, an affixing of a path toward above. Uh, which is just a remarkable interpretation of the crucifixion. Um, the specific link to the serpent is also really fascinating. I mean, it seems to kind of come out of nowhere. Uh, there is, right, so, so it's alluding to the story in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, where the Israelites in the wilderness are, uh, as a result of their complaints, they are afflicted with a plague of um, burning or poisonous serpents. Right. Uh, and, um, but Moses... Uh, on God's instructions, fashions a bronze serpent, a nechash nechoshet. Uh, there's a wordplay there, there that as well. kind of now reflects in kind of a yeah. magical character of the bronze is reflecting the serpent, uh, and those who, and then uh, which is affixed on the staff, and then those who look at the serpent, uh, the raised up serpent, are healed. Mm. 
Um, so yeah, so what's going on in that exegesis? I mean, it's, uh, I, I suppose what's, what's maybe striking about it for, for those who, uh, um, you know, for those who are coming to it from a, a vision of the Bible that centers on Eden is that the serpents, I mean, usually it's not a good thing to be associated with serpents. Right. So this idea of Jesus being associated with a serpent, even a healing serpent, uh, seems odd. Um, yeah, I mean, this is part of, uh, I mean, just by way of more general background, again, of, of John's detailed kind of engagement and, and very um, imaginative engagement uh with uh, exegetical engagement, interpretive engagement with the with the Old Testament, with the Hebrew Bible, um, with a lot of echoes in rabbinic exegesis, Second Temple exegesis more broadly. Here, what may, may what may come to mind even most prominently is Gnostic exegesis, mm. and uh, it would take us quite a while, I guess, to to get into Gnosticism in detail. But right. um, I guess mm. most briefly, uh, what we have here is. Uh, a competing interpretation of Christ and of Christianity, though Gnosticism wasn't just Christian, but Gnostic Christians who understood Jesus differently, understood what it meant to be Christian differently, were ultimately, um, and very early rather, um, understood to be uh, heretical. Uh, But in their um, understanding of Jesus, they actually strikingly end up reversing the entire Eden story, end up seeing the serpent of the Eden story as an emissary from the true God come to bring wisdom to Adam and Eve uh, and develop a whole exegesis of Old Testament serpents where serpents are ultimate forces of evil, but also ultimate forces of good, depending on which serpent. And so John seems to be arguably in conversation with Gnosticism here and elsewhere um, and providing a theology uh, that is that assigns a significance to Jesus as fundamentally cosmic as theirs but that also is fundamentally different from theirs right. in, in many ways among them including his affirmation of a connection with uh, the God of the Old Testament right I think we, we're going to wrap up in just a moment. I just uh, w- one one note just to connect the conversation with Matt Fred and our conversation here is he does allude that's Matt Fred alludes to not John uh, <laughs> <laughs> the opinion of Thomas Aquinas that um, yes John uh, was John was written later than the first three Gospels and it was in part a response to heresies I don't know if he's attentive or aware of Gnosticism in particular uh, so mm. it's an interesting connection between that that particular reflection on uh, on John 3 there uh, there's so yeah, much yeah more. that's interesting to see Aquinas said perceive that yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, aware of that sort of dynamic. Uh, there's so much more we could speak about. Friends, our original plan was to have Svi and Matt on together, but we had some technological complications, and so we've uh, recorded instead this um, follow-up episode. We hope you found it uh, an important um, other uh, additional element to thinking about the Gospel of John. Mining Scripture does um, hope to uh, encourage and um illustrate the value of interreligious friendship and conversations. So thank you, Svi, for uh, this conversation. 
Thank you. Thank you, Gabriel. And friends, of course, uh, thank you for joining us. And be sure to be with us for the next upcoming episode of Mining Scripture, where divine word and human reason meet. <laughs>